Well, good morning again. It is the Lord's Day. And Genesis chapter 15. What an amazing opportunity to dive into words that we have just sung that they are indeed ancient, but so is the gospel promise ancient. And we rely on it so wonderfully. One of my favorite things in all of the Bible is when there is the occurrence of a human walking into the presence of God Almighty and asking the question, how? (laughs) How? It's already said in verse 7, it says, I am the Lord that brought you out of the Ur of the Chaldeans. Who did that? Did you do that, Abraham? How much contribution did you have in coming out of Ur of the Chaldeans? And the same will be true of all that comes to Abraham. That same amount of participation from Abraham. And this passage is so rich with divine activity. And that's what's so exciting about the question. When somebody goes into the divine presence and asks the question, how? And I, I imagine how that question, how in heaven, must be perceived in, around the throne of, of God Almighty. Perhaps Gabriel glances at the throne and says, the human wants to know How? It's like walking or rowing out into the middle of the ocean and saying to all of the water around you, saying, how can you possibly make me wet? But it's not a disrespectful question that Abraham asks. It simply shows that from Abram's perspective, which is the human perspective, there was no human path to obtain the blessing of God. That's what this chapter is all about. It's not about a human path. It's not about Abraham doing something to secure a blessing. That's next week. And Abraham and Sarah doing something together to try to secure the path to God's blessing. That's the human path. Next week. This week is all about sheer divinity. There is nothing but divinity in this path. And it's all provoked in response where God shows up to answer the human question, how? Because from Abraham's perspective... There was no human path, a path in which there is no human participation is what God appears and shows up to give to Abraham, a path that has no human contribution, that is all divinity. In fact, Abraham sleeps through the ceremony, a path that God alone walks to secure the blessing for Abraham. And this is exactly the nature of the blessing of salvation. 1 Peter 1.3 was read this morning. That we, who is, someone who has caused us to be born again into a living hope. Who caused that? Did you cause that? It is the same dynamic. It is the same uh, presence of divinity in response to the question, how can that possibly happen? How is it that we can be called God's people. And that is exactly why we are called children of Abraham. We are children of Abraham because of a promise that is given in this exact same way. A way in which there is no human path to obtain our salvation, but rather God steps in and secures it for us. So this opening up, this question that Abraham asks opens up A scene of divine graciousness. A graciousness in which the entire theater and script of all human redemption, all of God's story from here on in through the rest of the Bible will play out on this answering of the question in Genesis chapter 15. How is it, God, that you are going to do that? And God establishes something that is 
true in this chapter. It is a revelation of himself that is to be known for all generations to come, but it is also a picture of the dynamic between God and man that becomes the cornerstone of all of God's dealings in the future, including the incarnation of Christ and the preaching of the gospel itself. So, in other words, turning back to Genesis chapter 15 and these ancient words, it isn't some dusty relic of a story that is largely irrelevant to us where we have to search hard in order to find meaning for ourselves. There's something established in this chapter that God wants all people of all time to know and to shape their faith. Reading the Old Testament can be a challenge for people. I've often heard people that they struggle reading the Old Testament. And let me say this about reading the scriptures. I've said it before, I'll say it again. That there is no faster way to make the scripture irrelevant to you than to place yourself in the middle of the story. It's not about you. It's about God. It's for you. But it's not about you. It's about God. And the way that God makes it for us is to make it about himself. It is a story about God. This is not a story about Abraham. It is a story about God. There's a declaration of something that is true about God in these words. You see, you'll probably never meet a Jebusite or a Girgashite or however you say the names of all of these people. You'll probably never uh, um, experience a, a flaming pot and a burning oven in your prayer life. But you see, this isn't about imitation. It's about declaration. A declaration of something that is true about God. And so here's the main point. Here's what I would like you to understand, I believe is the significant thing to get from this chapter. It is this, that the promise of God is here affirmed to Abraham. And it is affirmed to both assure Abraham's doubts and to shape his faith which would be a saving faith, the same kind of faith that you and I must have. It affirms his doubts and it shapes his faith by a revelation of God, a fuller revelation of God. Reading through the scriptures, God shows up in a way that he's never shown up before. It is a, a fuller revelation of God and it does indeed become the foundation on which all of redemption history and saving faith is built, including our own salvation even today. It is a very significant story, Genesis chapter 15, and I hope that the truths of it will be impressed in your heart and mind regarding your own faith and your own salvation. In the text, the promise of land is affirmed and its borders are defined. But the land is just one component of God's promise to Abraham. The substance of that God promises to Abraham, the substance of the promise is God's blessing. It's more than the land. It's, it's God's blessing, that which Jacob also would, would seek so earnestly after, which you and I also should seek so earnestly from God. It is the blessing of which the land only plays a part. And the promise of God to Abraham involves a lot more than just real estate. God had his mind on more than just merely securing a piece of land for Abraham. But what the land does is it, it demonstrates God's sovereignty. It demonstrates God's power in the stuff that is seen, in the stuff that, that is visible. God shows all of this. It, I, I, can, I can do this for you. I can give this piece of land to you, although Abraham doesn't even have a single descendant yet. But what God proves in the land, he proves 
that he can do in all of the unseen necessary realities in order for us to secure God's blessing, the blessing of salvation. God's power is sufficient for all things, all that is obstacles to our salvation. So I'm going to work through a few words here this morning, working through the meaning of this text, and hang on these words, the meaning of the overall passage. The first word is the word significance. I've hinted at this already, but I believe believe that there is incredible significance in the promise that God gives to Abram here. What God does by showing up in response to Abraham's questions is so significant to salvation, so significant that when the Apostle Paul wants to best describe to the Galatian church how it is that they are saved by Christ, he calls them children of Abraham. You are sons and daughters of Abraham according to the promise of Abraham. It is a cornerstone that is laid here. It is so significant, a cornerstone that is laid for all of the rest of the Bible, all of the law, all of the prophets, all of the the preaching of the Bible, the gospel itself and and the preaching of the apostles all comes back to the promise that God gave to Abraham and the demonstration of God's power to give something to a human in which the human plays no part. And God does it by his graciousness. That is something that all of redemption history is built upon. It is indeed rich to go through all of the law and the ceremonies that are around the temple. It is rich to go through all of those things that were delivered to Moses and the sacrifices and see how Christ was anticipated in all of the sacrifices that were given to Moses and in the temple. But all that Moses delivered was dependent upon the promise that came before Moses. If it hadn't have been for Abraham, if it hadn't have been for the promise where God shows up and answers the questions to Abraham's question of how in this particular way, then Moses could never have received the law. As Paul makes very clear in Galatians chapter 3, that the, the promise comes before the law. And when the law comes, it doesn't supersede the promise. The law is dependent upon the promise. And all of the, the, the structures, the, the building blocks that, that scriptures would, would build upon us and all of the, the ways that God declares himself to be sufficient in all things is all built upon this cornerstone of the promise to Abraham, which Christ himself would come to fulfill and be that cornerstone for us, to be the promise fulfilled and to make us children of Abraham according to faith and according to the promise. See, the promise comes before the law. Moses in the law explained how it is that God's mercy finds a way in all of the temple sacrifices and all of the rituals and, and all of the things that God gives to Moses to explain how it is, the substitutional sacrifice finds a way to explain how it is that God's mercy finds a way to us. But, but Abraham, in the promise to Abraham, answers a, a preliminary question that, becomes, that comes before, how can God show mercy? It answers the question, why? Why does God show mercy? Why does God pay any attention to these people? Why does God come down and speak to Moses? There is no answer to that question, except the question that God gives in Genesis chapter 15. I will do it, Abraham. Why does God make a way for mercy? Why does God show up in Egypt? Why does he show up again on Mount Sinai? Why does he show up to the the shepherds in the field? There is no human explanation. 
just as with our own calling and our own salvation. There is no human explanation except sheer divinity showing up and promising to do so. There's a marvelous thing when our Lord came into the world. Both Mary in her song of praise to to the Lord when she's carrying the baby references the promise of Abraham that was being fulfilled in the child that would be born. But these are the words of Zechariah in Luke chapter 1, 72, where he says that God is fulfilling his holy covenant, his holy covenant that he swore on oath to give to Abraham. And that's what this is. This is an oath-swearing ceremony. The second word after significance is the word sights, and the ceremony would have had lots of sights and smells. Some of you were reared in a kind of religion that had smells and bells. Well, this is for sure lots of sights and smells that Abraham had in a ceremony, visible symbols in a ceremony that God asked Abraham to prepare. Visible symbols are used in a ceremony, and those symbols appear very strange to those who don't know what they are about. And remember that even in the symbols that we use today, we'll be using a symbol at the Lord's table today. Uh, next week, we'll be participating in, this, in the symbol of baptism, and I hope you can tune in at about 5.30 next weekend, next, next Lord's Day Sunday, where we will show live stream of baptism uh, here in our church, and we're excited about that. But remember that the symbols have no power. Don't depend upon the symbols. If you go through the scriptures, there's, there's no mention. Uh, all the, the symbols fall away, and what, 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 what stands is what the symbols point to, which is the unseen realities in the promise of God. But Abraham would have known what he was preparing for. It would have been not strange. It would have been familiar to him that he was preparing for a covenant ceremony. A ceremony where two parties, usually two parties, this one is very unique, where two parties covenant with one another. There's a significant text in Jeremiah 34, verse 18, where it says, I will, I will make these people like the calf that they have split in two and walked in between them. In other words, God's saying, I'm going to bring uh, judgment and destruction on these people because that's similar to the oath that they swore when they walked through these calves that were split in two. That's the sights of the ceremony. Now, I wonder what's going on in Abraham's mind. I wonder if surely at, at this point the question in Abraham's mind would, would not be so much how is this going to happen? But anticipating the ceremony, cutting up the animals, preparing them as the Lord commanded, I wonder if his question now wasn't more so, what? What can I do? What can I swear to? What oath can I possibly bring? And being familiar with the ceremony, knowing exactly what it's all about, where two parties walk through uh, 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 animals that are cut in half, and may I be like these animals that are cut in two. May I enter into death if I do not keep my side of the bargain. What do I have to offer? Surely that question must have been in Abraham's mind. But that brings us to what actually happened, which is the nature of the promise. Listen to what chapter 15, verse 12 says. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abraham, and behold, dreadful and great darkness came upon him. 
Was Abraham needing a nap? Do you think that was the, this was the answer to the question of what that was in his mind? I think I know what I can bring. In fact, I'm feeling very sleepy. I think maybe when God shows up, I'll maybe retire for a little while and have a little nap. I'm working very hard and I'm feeling a little sleepy. Perhaps God won't be offended if I just snooze. How would you like it if you were covenant with somebody? I have a history of putting people to sleep. But how would you like it if you were covenant with somebody in a solemn, serious ceremony to the death and the other person decided to fall asleep? Was God offended? No, quite the opposite. This was the whole point of the picture of what is being declared to be true about the dynamic of the relationship between God and man. No, God was showing up to the answer to answer the question of how, and the answer to the question of how is 100% divinity. It's all God, it's a, it's a one-way street, it's, it's all unilateral. It is God stepping into a gap where no human could ever walk. And Abraham's sleep is a very significant picture that is true of every person who would ever secure God's blessing for themselves. It's to simply trust, it's simply rest, simply look to God. Pictured here wonderfully by Abraham's sleep. It's a remarkable picture. There is no human contribution. There is only a divine necessity and God shows up. And what is necessary from divinity? God appears and does. And unilaterally covenants with this man. Now, this is this kind of unilateral activity, this kind of sovereign purposes of God saying, this is how I'm going to do it. It's not an affront to human dignity. It's not an affront to human free will. Quite the opposite. There's no greater human dignity that can be given to us than to be loved in this way. And it becomes the grounds for all Christian humility. Do you wish you had more humility? Then read this text over again and, and, and meditate on it, on it and understand how in Christ the same thing is true of you, that there's, there's no human path for you to obtain the blessings of God, that God simply shows up in the person of Jesus Christ and says, you are my child. But when we don't understand that, there's very real evidences of it in our character, in our speech, in our life. We're haughty, we're, we're unforgiving, we're impatient with people around us who aren't perfect, we're insecure about our own failings and nobody can talk to us about the things in our life that should, we should be talked to about. Those are all indications and signs that there's something about the nature of the promise of God to us, first declared in Abraham, that we're not grasping. It is the grounds of all Christian humility. Some of you have been reared in a form of religion that it never allows this kind of sleep. I know it sounds odd, doesn't it? <laughs> we usually we say, we well, need to wake up. But when it comes to how is it that we secure the blessings of God, the message is exactly the opposite. You need to stop. You need to rest. You need to cease. And pictured here with the wonderful and very vivid image of Abraham sleeping. When we come to the communion table in a few moments, I trust that you will find rest in God. I hope when you eat of the elements and you eat of the bread and drink of the cup, 
that you will simply believe and rest in the promise of God to you. Proverbs 16, 15 says this, in the light, in the light of a king's face, there is life. And his favor is like the clouds that bring a spring rain. A wonderful image in that proverb of simply a, a sovereign king that has a blessing to bestow, putting it on one of his subjects who has no good reason to be there asking for it except that you are my king. A wonderful thing, this, the, the picture that that proverb gives of the graciousness of God, which leads us to the substance of the promise, which is indeed graciousness. If the nature of the promise is that it's one way, the substance of the promise is that it is gracious. That's the substance of the promise. What follows in Abraham's sleep is the opening of a scene of God's graciousness. Grace is the bestowing of a gift that cannot ever be earned. And while Abraham sleeps, God says, and none of this has happened yet, Abraham doesn't even have a descendant yet, and the the land in in which God is promising to give to Abraham's descendant, Abraham has exactly zero descendants yet, but God is saying, it's all done, Abraham. In fact, you'll be dead and gone before a a lot of it is materialized. When, When David conquers Jerusalem and takes it from the Jebusites, the last group mentioned here, it's in 2 Samuel 5, which is about a thousand years from the time that the Lord is giving this promise to Abraham. None of this has happened yet, but in God's promise to him, in how Abraham's perspective should be of the promise, it's all done. And it's not going to be easy for the descendants of Abraham, God says. It's not going to be a walk in the park for you. But the object of their faith, which is God, has guaranteed all things on their behalf. All that is promised, God will give graciously. God shows up and he walks solo, not with anybody else. He walks solo through the animals. And just imagine the picture of condemnation. Uh, condescension that this is. God coming down and covenanting with a human. God Almighty, God divine in, in all of his eternity and all of his majesty and all of his power and all of his glory coming down and walking in between a few dead calves. Why? Only because of his purpose to do so. As he covenants with this fretful man this doubting man, this lying man, this man who's just been reminded that he's an Ur of the Chaldeans in order to bring all things to him and to fulfill his promises to him. And this gracious promise is what would fuel Abraham's faith. This is what would bring Abraham to life. It's not being brought to life that Abraham secures the blessing, but receiving the blessing is such a powerful ceremony for Abraham. It's such a powerful declaration and and a revelation of the fullness of God and his graciousness that this would bring Abraham to obedience and worship of God, so much so that he'd be willing to even sacrifice the the son Isaac that he does receive later on. Why? Because this this image of God and his gracious faithfulness is so powerful to Abraham. The rest of Abraham's life would be a mixture of blunders and obedience. 
of highs and lows that probably sounds familiar to you. It's very familiar to me. Blenders in, mixed in with obedience. But the blenders never nullify the promise because the promise was never based on Abraham to begin with. And the obedience, so get this, the obedience never replaces the promise because the obedience is a response to the promise. The obedience is the belief in the promise, but the obedience is not the substance of our faith, looking in ourselves, saying, how good can we be? The substance of our faith is the promise of God, given to us graciously, sovereignly, And the evidence of our belief in that is our obedience. It's called worship. That's why Psalm 50 says, why do you bring me all your your bulls and your cows and your goats? Don't you know that I own all of them already? It says, bring me the sacrifice of praise. That's the sacrifice that we bring, the sacrifice of praise. The final word is the breadth of the promise. The breadth of the promise. The breadth of the promise is God's dominion over all of the nations that Abraham then knows. It is a word of God's dominion over all of the nations that Abraham knew to be powerful, probably symbolized by Abraham's trying to to, uh, make the birds of prey, perhaps symbolizing the nations that were around him that were more powerful than he was. Abraham trying to, uh, to shoot them away off of the sacrifice. But then Abraham is put to sleep and Abraham's labor is insufficient to do anything. And God speaks about those nations and he says, I own them, they're mine. See, not only does Abraham own the descendants that Abraham doesn't have yet, but he owns all the nations around as well. They're not outside of his sovereign dominion and his sovereign power. His, his dominion is not limited merely to the descendants of Abraham. God will be able to keep the descendants of Abram and to save them because his sovereignty includes sovereignty over all that opposes him, all that will oppose him, all that will ever oppose him. There will be nothing that his children experience in the world that is outside of the realm of God's purpose and will and dominion. And that is the the breadth of the promise that God gives to Abraham. The mention of the sins of the Amorites, that, that his children will return, is specifying very clearly something about the, the sins of the Amorites not being full yet. That is a, a comment or a, a word in the text that again affirms very clearly that all of these nations only make their way in the world by God's sovereign purpose. His hand is upon them as well. Psalm 103 verse 19 says, the Lord has established his throne and it is over all of the nations and his kingdom rules over all. Now, from a New Testament perspective, from a New Testament perspective, we know that God's purposes are not so small as to keep this small piece of land. In fact, Jesus never talks about the land. 
The apostles never talk about the land. We know that the land was a, was a down payment. The land was, was a demonstration of God's power for God's much greater purposes, not for one small piece of real estate in the world, but for the entire world, for every nation, for every language, for every tribe, for every culture to come under the banner that was established in Christ. But Jesus came to this land. He died in this land. He was born in this land. But in order that his message would go from Jerusalem to Samaria to the ends of the earth. And that is the day in which we live. Our focus is on all of the nations. Our focus is on all of the world, knowing that God's kingdom rules over all things. May God help us and bless us to understand Genesis 15 as a significant and substantial way to understand God as he declares himself to be and understand what saving faith looks like. Would you please pray with me? God Almighty, I pray that we would grasp your graciousness and thank you that you allow our our questions and you show up to answer our questions. I pray that you would humble us before you I pray that your sovereign purposes would be so very desirable for us and that we would learn by virtue of understanding them the sacrifice of praise. Help us, I pray, in Jesus' name, amen.